Hey everyone, this is Mike Paterno, and I want to welcome you to Mostly Unseen with Jeff Boucher. Thanks for joining us. We're happy to have you with us today. Jeff is the pastor of Mill Pond Church. I want to let you know that any of these segments from our podcast will be accessible through our website at millpondchurchny.com. We have a great topic for you today. With me, as always, is our host, Pastor Jeff Boucher. Welcome, Jeff. Good to be here again, Mike, and uh, very excited about uh, this next installment of uh, Who is Jesus? Yes, yes. Going and, to the uh, third installment of it today? Yes. Excellent. So it's uh, it's great, and if you're just joining us, uh, we've been talking about, you know, who is Jesus? We hear about him. Many people, I think, have a lot of misconceptions of him, and so we're just kind of opening up some of the the writings, you know, mm. in this case, in the Gospel of John and uh and talking about him so so yeah and uh, i think today we're going to look at john and we're going to look at chapter four and i think what i want us to maybe think about for a minute before we dive in is when you think of the apostles of jesus what do you think of? like you think of the church today when you think of these apostles with churches named after them mm-hmm. you have the apostle paul with St. Paul churches everywhere, St. Peter churches everywhere, St. John everywhere. You know, what, what do you think of these guys? You know, it, it's funny. When I read through the Bible, I think, man, these guys were like these like blue collar guys that really weren't that educated, that, you know, they were just kind of, and they, there was nothing like amazing about them individually. Um, but yeah, wow, after, right? Yeah. You know, you look back and people say, man, I wish I was like those guys, or I wish I was you know, whatever. But I got to tell you, here's a picture that we have of Jesus. Jesus, you know, people wonder, what if I've sinned so much? Or what if I'm, you know, what if I'm just not up to the, you know, up to snuff or, you know, I don't measure up. Mm. And I always have said to people, because I think this is what scripture teaches, is God will, you know, accept you wherever you are, but he refuses to leave you there. Because... Once you meet him, you have your epiphany, mm. if you will, your God, you know, your God moment, your come to Jesus moment, you know, that conversion, right? Um, where everything changes, um, he does, he changes everything. And what I want us to see today, and see if you can see it before we point it out, when he met these apostles and called them into service with him, they were just like your regular joes in fact they were filled with prejudice Mm. and we're going to see some of that today below the surface by not so much what's said but what's unsaid Mm. Uh, so kind of like mostly unseen yes that's the (laughs) mostly what we always tie it in (laughs) that's that's the title of what we're you know our podcast here so but it's true it's mostly unseen and so many things in the bible are mostly unseen and sometimes it takes spiritual eyes mm. to see them. So um, let's do this. Let's take a look and, and a read through John chapter 4. And we'll just take it from, we'll take it in, in increments. Okay. But let's let's give a kind of a, a good chunk here. So read verses 4 through, oh, let's say, verse 16. Okay. All right. Now we had to go through Samaria, meaning Jesus. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay, let's stop right there. So I, I always believe that when you dive into the Bible, you really want to know what's going on. And the only way to, you know, to really get the, the true meaning out of something, just like if you're reading any writing, you want to, you know, you want to understand what's happening in the culture, what's what's going on in this passage. And so many of us would miss this because, again, the Bible was written to at a different time to a different culture, you know, 2000 years ago. Uh, but the people that it was talking about, the people that were involved, no less sophisticated, no less intelligent. In fact, maybe even more so mm. in many ways. But um, but, you know, you want to understand what's going on in the context. And there's lots of you know things to understand here and so i want to lay out a couple of things real quickly so that you know those that are listening right now and even you know us right here we can understand what's happening and what's what's jesus walking into what's what's he bringing his disciples into now the very first thing i want you to see is look at verse four and this is a really revealing statement that many people would gloss right over because they, they wouldn't say it. And it says, now, he had to go through Samaria. Speaking of Jesus. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, that's a very strong statement. A fifth grader in that day would have understood mm. this to be, wow, what's going on there? And why is that? So I, I always like to liken things, make analogies to things that we can maybe picture today. So I'd say to people, you know, if you know your maps, your geography a little bit, Think of the state of New Jersey. It's about 150, 170 miles long, about 75 miles wide, you know, give or take. That's about the size of Israel. Okay, so that's, if you can imagine that, it puts things in perspective. Let's break New Jersey, which Jerseyans do, having been a lifetime <laughs> one. Um, what they do is they'll say North Jersey, South Jersey, Central Jersey. And you know, North Jersey probably runs from the top of North Jersey, you know, where it meets New York, down to, say, you know, somewheres in um, the Amboys, right? The, mm -hmm. the Perth Amboy Bridge, things like that. Then it goes from there to, say, Cherry Hill, which would be central. And then from Cherry Hill south would be southern New Jersey. And if you picture that, at this time when Jesus walked the earth, the land of Israel was broken down to three sections. 
it was Galilee in the north, where Jesus actually grew up. He grew up in mm. Nazareth. It's Samaria in the center part. Talk about that in a minute. And it's Judea, or Judah, in the south. And that's where Jesus was born, Bethlehem, just outside Jerusalem, mm. right? Not too far. Mm -hmm. So the temple was built in Judea, okay? So that's in southern New Jersey, let's say. Central New Jersey was populated by the Samaritans, and northern Jersey more, although there's Jews in north and south, present in the times of Jesus, living, um, the north was populated also by a lot of Gentiles, the south far more Jews, and the middle was mixed breed, we're going to call it. It was a mixed group. They were intermarried. And who are they men intermarried with and why? So back in the time of, of Daniel, the prophet, um, around 550 BC, 580 BC, um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes down and crushes Judea, crushes Israel, and destroys the temple and takes every all the, the artifacts and you know items out brings it to Babylon, takes a lot of the people captive, leaves just the undesirables in the land. And that means the elderly who couldn't travel well. And, too poor, too weak. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The really poor, some people to work the lands, um, so forth and so on. Some weak, we'll call them vassal leaders under the, you know, king mm -hmm. himself. And everybody else, the people of nobility, the people that were hard workers, the people, you know, they took all them and took them captive. Then they also populated that area with captives from other areas. And so what ended up happening in that middle region is that people began to intermarry, which was at that time against what the Jews believed in. They wanted to keep pure so they wouldn't adulterate themselves, if you will, by the gods that other people served. Mm. So they stayed among their own. And so that's the kind of picture of, of what's there. The Jews, when they returned to the land under initially Zerubbabel and Ezra being their spiritual leader, their priest, and then Nehemiah mm -hmm. rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and they got the temple, you know, rebuilt and the walls of Jerusalem put back together. And then the temple went through a very long building period and um, until the time of, you know, Herod. And, you know, it was all being built up uh, into what was never, never... Um, compatible or equal to the original mm. Temple of Solomon. Um, but I say all that just to say, when the Jews started flooding back in, and Gentiles in the north or whatever, the Gentiles didn't care much for Jews. They didn't like the Samaritans at all. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And to give you an idea of what the hatred was like, if you were going to travel from, say, southern, we'll call it New Jersey, right? Judea. And you were going to go up to northern and you're walking these places imagine the delaware river separates pennsylvania from new jersey if you were going to go up there back in that day they would have crossed over the delaware river in southern jersey down by philadelphia let's say they would have walked up pennsylvania right past the center part of new jersey and they would have re-entered you know in into Galilee so they just to avoid 
the Samaritan people. Over time, the Samaritans, although very much Jewish in in their, you know, makeup, but only half because they were intermarried mm -hmm. and and they, you know, they were hated so much they ended up worshiping at, you know, Mount Carmel or you know, in the capital of of their area was Samaria. And uh, and that happened too under the ten tribes. I won't get into the split of the kingdoms, but but um it was just a separate kind of animal. And the apostles, the disciples, never would have gone through there. So I said all that about this one verse that introduces mm -hmm. this section that says, now, he had to go through Samaria. That would have gotten everyone's attention. And then look what he, he does. And you read this, but it says, he came to this uh, town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So this is going back. So John's writing this, but he's referencing Jacob and Joseph. They were 1,900 years before this moment in time, before Jesus came. But why did they go back there? Because Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. His son was Isaac. His son was Jacob. And then Joseph, of course, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, but also sold into slavery in Egypt, prime minister of Egypt, saved the whole Jewish mm -hmm. nation and brought them into Egypt where they were ultimately enslaved. Okay. So he's giving us this understanding that this woman says, you know, is going to say to him, she knows how important this well is. It's a well that Jacob himself built. He dug it. Right. So we've got some history. Yeah, it's a lineage yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, not just you full Jews, if you will. So Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sits down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour or 12 noon. When, the Samar when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, this is really pretty powerful because the mores of the culture would make it wrong for a man to speak to a woman in public. Okay? Not God's word, not, you know, from God's heart, mm -hmm. but the mores, the norms of the culture. So Jesus speaks to this woman and asks her for a drink. And you would think right away, someone's going to object, one of the disciples. But look what it says in the next verse. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, if you add up the disciples and count Jesus in among them, how many people is that? I have 13 people <laughs> 13 people and he that, sent 12 to buy food <laughs> and he sent 12 of them to buy food right so that should make you sit up and take notice wait a minute why would 12 of them go to buy food well here's why they were prejudiced jesus knew if they stayed there they would prevent him from what we're going to see carrying out god's will and you say oh my gosh are you serious yes so here's the disciples, and this should be an encouragement to all of us, mm -hmm. that when God calls us, we aren't righteous. We aren't, you know, we don't have our act together. I can't tell you how many people I've heard through the years, you know, Jeff, it's really good that you go to church. I would go, but i got to get my act together first. Right, Barry, heard somebody say oh, that? Oh, my goodness, so many times. So really? many times. And what do you think they mean when they're saying that? Like, you know, I know. What, what oh, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be there. I don't, you know, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough. So right. if I was good enough, maybe. Right, and, and they're saying, 
And one day I hope to be mm -hmm. good enough. Well, none of us are good enough. Unless you're perfect, you're not good enough to be in God's company in that sense, right? But Jesus knows that. He calls us, he says, while we were still sinners, he called us. Mm -hmm. Not by anything we've done, mm -hmm. no virtue in us. So I always tell people, you're not going to get there on your own. If you want to get there, now is the time to come to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Because he's going to help you do it. He's going to change your heart, change your life. And that's what you're going to see here. So I even love how he actually starts the conversation. He asked her for something small. And yeah. that's he could have said anything to her. But he asked, actually just asked her for a small, even though it violated all the social norms, the question he asked her is pointing to the fact that he asked for a small favor just to yeah. see where it was going to go. And you it know. was a normal everyday thing, right? In this sense, it was normal and everyday. You go by the well, women typically served. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Mm -hmm. we, we think, oh, you know, women's rights or equal. It's not that way. In that culture, the women loved that part of, of life. They loved being the homemakers. They loved being the bombs. They loved being, and they had a lot of say mm -hmm. in that world through, you know, talking with their husbands, you know, influence in the families. They were, you know, the fabric in many ways of the society. And so Jesus speaks to this woman. And, and I love this too, because of all the unlikely things that Jesus could do is number one, go into Samaria. Number two, speak to a woman. Number three, actually converse what she's about to do and watch the unbelievable results that come from this in a variety of ways. Now, you're right when he asked her for something as simple, you know, a traveler weary and tired comes to a place that he's unfamiliar and you see a friendly face or you hope and that friendly face is, you know, you ask, can I, can I have, yeah, we would do that for a traveler. We would do that for somebody. If they're lost, you give them directions. They pull over. I get a lot of that by my house because I live at this in an area where people stop all the time looking, which way do I go? And they'll say, hey, you know where this is? You're like, yeah, sure, go down here, go over there. And you do it because you're just helping someone who doesn't know. So here he goes and he says in verse 7, sorry, in verse 9, the Samaritan woman, after he asks for a drink, said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, I love this. I want, if you're listening to this, I want you to write down, I'm going to have you do this four, five times, five times. Each section of words, because I'm going to show you something else that comes out of this. So, the first thing I want you to know is, is, is this. Get attention. And because there's a woman, get her attention. What is Jesus doing? By asking something to her, he just broke the social norm of men don't speak to women in public. Number two, she's a woman alone at the well. If you know the culture, that should raise a question. Why is she there alone? And it told us the hour. What time was she there? Was, she was there at noon. Noon is the heat of the day. Starts the, 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 the very heat of the day. Women, when did they come to the well? Now, why morning. morning and evening? Why did they go to the well? Because it was the coolest times. And what were they coming for? What was? What did she need? They had, they need water, and water's heavy. Yes, water's and in the heavy. sun. Yes, you're you're gonna you're you're working. And why do they need the water? Because the household things that they do, washing clothes, 
um, cooking, uh, feeding the animals and so forth, different domestic things that are needed. You'd come a couple times a day and you would walk and you always did it. The women did this in community with one another. They helped each other. They worked with each other just like the men did in, in many cases. So it was, it was, you know, pretty amazing. So Jesus speaks to her and says, you know, give me a drink, you know, and, and he's being very polite. And, and she says, I don't get it. How, why are you asking me? He got her attention speaking to her in the first place. Then, you know, being a Jew and speaking to her, a woman. And there's a reason she's at the well alone that we're going to come to in, in a moment. But we look at this. So she's there and she can't believe for a few reasons. One that we haven't mentioned yet. That he's asking her for this. Right? And so it goes on. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus is speaking in the third person. I want to read that again. And I want you to listen to what he's saying. The woman asks him, how is it you ask me, the Samaritan woman, right, for a drink? The Jews don't deal with us. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, what would that, what should that do to the woman? What do you think the woman's thinking here? Her, well, she, her mind is a little blown for sure. Like what living water, what are, you, what are okay. you talking about? This is like water, this water from the well is what gives us life. Absolutely true. Think of something even a little bit more significant where he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's asking you for the drink, Oh, that she's really talking to God. You would have asked him. Yeah. And he'd give you living water. So let's break this down. If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? Eternal life. Eternal life. If you knew the gift of God, okay, if you knew it, if you knew that you needed it, you'd want it. If you'd want it, I can give it. If you knew who it was that's asking this, you would have asked him. And what would he have done? He would have given it to you. Yes, he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is the master of metaphor and analogy, contrasts and comparisons, right? And John is writing all this. So John is actually, I should say, Jesus, of course, is John uh, writes a lot about things like this. And, you know, if you could think about all the metaphors, right, John might use, uh, all the I am statements, for instance. Mm -hmm. I am, and think about, what he compares himself to, everyday things that people are aware of. I am the, the bread of life. The bread of life. Now, he refers to himself as the bread of life. He says, my father, he says, Moses did not give you the bread, meaning the manna, in other words, the bread that came down from heaven. Although, when they were living, when that was going on in the Old Testament, those, that manna, they'd wake up in the morning, and there it was from God. Mm -hmm. And it was actual bread. And it was wafers of bread, if you will. And Jesus said, he didn't do that. He said, I am the bread of life. So was Jesus a loaf of bread? <laughs> no. no. So what did he mean he was the bread? What does bread symbolize to the people? What does it represent? Sustaining life, nutrition. Sustaining life. He says, but you didn't get the true bread that came from heaven. That gave you physical life. Mm -hmm. I've come, right? I am the bread of life. 
So when we think of that, wait a minute, I am the bread. He's saying that he sustains your life. There's a well, there's water, and there's bread now. Water, but he wants to give you living water. And he, he references later that he's the bread of life. He also said, I am the great shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, people would have known what a shepherd is. He said, I am the good shepherd, right? So all that came before me were not the good shepherd, mm. right? I am the good shepherd. Wow. So I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection. Remember, somebody died, his good friend, Lazarus. And Jesus comes, and when he comes, the sisters of Lazarus are brokenhearted. And Martha comes out and says, Lord, if you had been here, you could have stopped this. We know what you can do. Blah, blah, blah. Then he said, your brother will live. I know he's going to live. He's going to rise again in the, in, the, in the last day in the resurrection, telling us that this was a common mm. understanding among people. He says, yes, Martha, but I am the resurrection. You're speaking to him. And then it was, oh my goodness. And then he calls forth Lazarus out of the tomb. That wasn't the final resurrection though. Right. Because he had to do what? He had to die again. He had to die again. So, you know, imagine if you go, I wish God would do that for me, raise me from the dead. Yeah, then you got to die again. You were afraid to die in the first place. What do they want the second time? Maybe? You know, I, I don't know. You know, Ignorance you want to die twice. Right? You know, people want something before they really think right, of the, right. uh, the unintended consequences, you know, afterwards. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know want to do that again. There's this actor, he has a joke. He goes, it's not that I'm afraid of death. I just want to be there when it happens. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to put it. So anyway, when we look at that, it says, if you knew the gift of God, and this is verse 10, and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. When I read that, you know what would come to mind if you're reading slow and you're really trying to examine this? Wait a minute, if I was that woman, I, I, I definitely want to know what the gift of God is, but I want to know who you are. Who are you that you said, right, if you right. knew who it was? Well, who are you? So what did Jesus do in that one verse, in that one statement, in that one thing? So the first thing is he got her attention by asking for water, breaking some cultural norms. Second thing he did is what? Can you, can you establish there? Made her something. Made he her, made her recognize? Made her curious. Oh. Right? He made her, so he aroused curiosity. He aroused curiosity. He got her attention. Now he aroused curiosity. And he's like, okay, you got me. You got me curious. Now I, know, now I want to know, who are you? Okay, and we're going to wrap this all together at the end. So just remember those words, write that little couple of words, phrase, right? He aroused curiosity. So in 11, it says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Because what did he just say? You would have asked him and he would give you living water. Well, she's thinking he means the water in the well. But here's the metaphors, mm. right? It says, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As did his sons and his flocks and herds. Now, for the Jew, you have to understand something. When they came and introduced themselves in a formal setting, you would go back and back and back, and you say, I'm so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, or the daughter of so-and-so, whatever, until you hit a known name. That would be known in the culture mm -hmm. or a big name in your family and you could stop there and then they would say oh i know who you are now you know because this was important to the jew all right conversation for another day why that was but nonetheless it was very important so you know here you know when when she saw it says are you greater than our father jacob so 
we own this well. We Samaritans. We're here. We have this. It's kind of like a little nationalism mm -hmm. back and forth here. You know, a little territorial uh, thing going back and forth. Turf war. He says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Right? Who drank from it himself and also his, his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water, this physical water, right? will be thirsty again. Yes, of course. When we drink water, we get thirsty again. We come back and we drink more water and we drink more water and, and so forth. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him or her a spring of water. Now, when you think of water, a drink of water and a spring of water, what's the difference? A drink of water is, is finite. A spring constantly Limitless. gives water. Yeah, it continues to flow. So you can take a drink of water, and she understood that because you drink, you're gonna drink again. You drink, you drink. That's that's part. You of can live around life. the spring. You can set up a culture around the spring if you wanted to. Absolutely. And so a spring represents what? Life. Life. A spring represents life. So Jesus said, "The water I give you will become in you a well, a spring of water." welling up right bubbling up mm. into eternal life so he just differentiated and we know what he's talking about here what is that living water who is that living water well we know it's jesus and beyond jesus trinity think mm -hmm. it's the holy spirit because the holy spirit in us we have enough analogy throughout scripture to know that he's that living water jesus is the living water and he often goes back and forth between the spirit himself and the father so I'm going to give you living water if you want that. Now, so we, we have them now getting attention. Then we have them arousing curiosity, right? Then look at what she says here in 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, she's still thinking it will quench my physical thirst. But what he's saying is something different. She knows there's a qualitative difference, doesn't know what it is exactly, but wants it. So he just created what in her? A conflict. Not so much a conflict, actually a desire. Oh. Right? He wanted, you know, the conflict, and I know why you would say something like that, because water Still versus right. spirit. Right. So it's not so much a conflict in the way that I'm looking at it. It's much more a a desire to have, all right, that sounds better than what I'm thinking. All right, I'm going to go with you. Give me that. So he created the desire by the way he spoke about it. Write that down, right? Created desire. So now you have three things. You have, what's the first one? Curiosity. Get attention. Uh, attention, right. Second one, it's arouse curious. curiosity. Yep. Third one, create desire. All right? So now he gets your attention. He makes her curious. Now she has a desire to have what he's offering. Okay? So he told her. Now, this has nothing to do with anything. Right? Watch this now. Or so we think when you read it. He told her, go. Call your husband and come back. Now, some might say, well, you know what Jesus was doing there? He knew this was a social norm. If I get you're asking for a drink, but until your husband's around, I don't want to be talking to his wife in public right? and that's a good guess that's a good you know but there's more to it he says go 
call your husband, right, and come back. She says, what? I have no husband. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands. Now, that doesn't make her good or bad or anything. Just saying that because the wars, different things, you can lose mm. husbands, sickness, whatever. You've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. I said earlier, there's another reason that we didn't speak of. Why she was well alone. What would be one of the few reasons, very few reasons, that a woman would be at a well drawing water by herself? She's a social outcast. She's a social outcast. She is not accepted in the community. She lives there, but she's not part. Could you imagine a more lonely existence mm. than being in a community where you're ostracized? Back in the day when they would deliver you, they called it delivering you over to Satan. It's a brutal phrase, right? It's not, it's a little less, but what does it mean? It meant excommunicate. What they were trying to do if you were a sinner of some way is to bring pressure on you, social pressure, to cause you a good thing, to cause you to what? Want to conform and assimilate and be part of the community, which is what was going to give you life anyway, because it's yes. not like today where you just have everything. Correct. There you needed this family member, this person, this person. If you didn't have that, you were going to die most yes. likely. You need and to they purchase live... from this one and buy from that one and you know have this and your social life. And it was all in community. Right, all in community. So when you look at this, and you know she's there alone, then we say, okay, she's a social outcast. Was she a woman of ill repute? That's what most of the scholars was come down to us. So she was maybe living loose at one point. Um, at any rate, she was not part of the the norm. She was not part of the general population. Living a lonely existence in the midst of many people. And we have a lot of people that live like that today. Mm. We have a generation coming up that socially is not connected. And people go, are you kidding? They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They're on Snapchat. They're on, you know, every other thing that you can think of. Yes. But that's not the same as being known. You live with a false identity. Mm -hmm. You put out there who you want to be, not who you might or not who you really are. You communicate through layers, not, you know, from the surface, not from the depths. And so this is not real community. Mm. Having said that, though, technology can bring people together today. Grandparents who are living far away from their children and grandchildren. And it brings them close, right? You don't have the touch. Like the grandkids are not being held in the lap and being hugged and being by grandparents. But at least they can see who they are. They can hear from them. So it's, it's as good as you can get without being there, right? So Jesus says, go call your husband. He did this for a reason, and we're going to see what that is. And, he, and she says, I have no husband. You're right. You don't. And I, I know that. So how does Jesus know that? Well, look what she does. He says, what you have said is quite true. You have no husband. The one you've had five, and the one you have is not your husband. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. How could she see that? Awareness. <laughs> now awareness she's aware of what? Of who he is now. 
Well, definitely awareness, but what could only a prophet do that he just did? Oh, tell what tell about her life. Right. How without did knowing you know her? that? And a, it was always understood, and it's to this day. A prophet gets that insight from where? From God. From God. So God speaks to the people. God the Father is speaking to the Son. And the Son says, I, I know who you are. I know you. But he didn't want to call her out and lambaste. We, we like to do that with people. We like to show people their shortcomings. I like to tell you, you know, Mike, you're no good at this and you're no good at that. I see it on, the, you know, coaching. I, I, I've been a coach all my life, right? My, my adult life. And I can see the difference in coaches. I've trained coaches. I work with coaches. I help develop coaches. And when you see these coaches, you get some that just berate their players. And, you know, and, and you're looking at it going, Oh my goodness. I remember one time, a quick story, and I thought this was a brilliant word of advice. Um, Greg Shiano was the uh, head coach at Rutgers. Yes, I remember. Um, yep. Okay. So, so Shiano, he's back there again. He was gone for a while, went to Tampa yep, Bay and took the head, yeah. right, head position. And he worked in the NFL before that. And uh, he was from the same town I was from. And, you know, went to the same school my kids did and so forth. So I was coaching at the time, young kids, fifth and sixth graders. And I had his nephews. So his brother's kids, and I was coaching them. And, you know, because of the connection, Greg invited some of us coaches at different times down to his summer camp at Rutgers. So I went down one time, it was just me. And I go down there, and I got carte blanche. He said, go anywhere you want to go, into any of the position rooms, onto anywhere on the field, have at it. And when we're all done, I'll see you at the end of the, the day. And lunch is on us. You come up here, oh, wow. meet anybody you want, do anything you want. I was like a kid in a candy store, right? So I'm going all over the place. I get to lunch, and I'm sitting with three of his coaches. And I'm trying to strike up a conversation. And I say, hey, guys, I work with fifth and sixth graders a long way off from where you guys are, right? They've got another, what is it, seven years, eight years before they get to you. Um, but looking back now, and anything you can give, I have 12 coaches that work under me at my level. Can you give me anything that comes to mind that I can take back and share with them? So one guy just kind of looked at me like, and started nodding his head like, I can't think of a thing. One guy starts chuckling and, you know, not sure exactly why. And the other guy smiles and he said, yeah, I got something for you, coach. He said, here. He said, don't, don't be offended in this. I said, no, never. He said, make the kids under you love the game of football. He said, Here, here's what I'm saying. Don't take as overly important your positioning, your X's and O's, like meaning how you call a play or what plays you call or, you know, teaching these things. He says, because everything you teach, we're going to unteach when they get to us. We're going to make them into what we want them to be at this level. He said, however, if a child is coming through and if your kids don't have a good experience with you and don't love the game of football, they'll never get to us. Mm. And I thought, that is brilliant. So you coach for recidivism, for repetition. I always told my coaches from that point on, all of them, I said, do you want to know the, the mark of a successful coach? The kid's signing up next year. You're a successful coach. Oh, yeah, but what if I lost every game? He signed up, didn't he? That means he had some good experience or he wouldn't be here. And we keep them in it because sports are what builds great character mm -hmm. and so on. So that was a great lesson that you could look. But many coaches, I cannot tell you, 
They want to win at all costs. They berate yeah. somebody. They make a bad play. They come down. And that's part of our nature. I coached soccer for years, and unfortunately, you know, seen, unfortunately, a lot of that. And maybe as a coach, even I'll say, like, listen, nobody's perfect. I've probably oh, you made a few it. mistakes myself. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. Yeah, I've blown but, it many times. But what you're saying has so much resonance because, you know what, if you cannot teach them, if you, can, if you can't teach them life lessons in it, and working with then none of the rest was going to matter so yeah and just real quick i still work at coaching and running a league of flag football kids i always leave them as they're, le as they're leaving the park and, and I'm, i go back and forth i'm walking all over and as one game ends and another game begins because we play for hours and there's kids all walking up so we have about eight teams walking off at any given time you know one after another so i'll look at the coach or some of the kids hey how'd you do and right away what do they think of like, oh, hey, coach. <laughs> no, no, you know what they think of when they're walking off? When you, when I say to them, hey, how'd you do? They think of win and lose. Oh, yeah, that's Wins true. and losses. Oh, we lost, yeah. And I'm not asking that. So I'll look, and I know they're going to say it. So I'll say, hey, how'd you do? Oh, we lost. They said, hey, did you have fun? Yeah, that's it. It's a great day. Go home and enjoy. It was a great too. day. <laughs> I always start off the game. There's no winners and losers, everybody. Just play yeah. to have fun right now. And, no one's and, getting paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I would tell the coaches, there's no scouts on the sideline. Right. Don't, don't worry. You're, you're okay. Whatever you call and you blow it, don't worry. There's no scouts looking at your kids. You know what I mean? And uh, anytime these coaches really get like crazy, I'll say, hey, coach, what was your fifth grade record? They'll go, what do you mean? Huh? Yeah, nobody knows it because nobody cares. They don't care. You know what I mean? You know, nobody knows their fifth grade record. Did I even play back then? I don't even know. You know what I mean? <laughs> nobody knows. So anyway, sorry, we got distracted. Don't do that to me, Mike, because I get sorry, distracted by, by sports things. Okay. So But it's tying into this. It, it tied in somehow, somewhere in there it was it made sense. So the woman, you know, he says to her, You have no husband, and she then says Oh, I perceive that you're a prophet. Nobody, you know, that's crazy. Now look what she does. So the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet after he can he confronts her where, where, about her husband. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, what, what she did, we all do. What did she do? She said, you know, well, we have to worship here and you worship there. Because... Before that, you're, you're right on what you picked up there. What did she do? Oh, she recognized. She says, "I see that you're a prophet." She recognized him for who he was. Okay. And what was the subject that she recognized it on? Because she was able to, he was able to tell her who she was about her family and who she was and the husbands she had. And all of a sudden, she starts talking about worship. Mm. What did she do? She taught. She she put the two together. She changed the yeah. subject. Oh yes. What Change do you do when somebody points something out? You try to go somewhere else. Oh, no, so you deflect. You say, "Yeah, what about you, Kenny?" You know. You know. What about you, Mike? Uh, you know. hey, why are you picking up me? What about him? You know. What about her? You know. And that's and that's what we do. And and we we deflect. What did she do? She deflected, and she just said, "Oh, I perceive that you're a prophet." You know. We worship here on this mountain, but you Jews said it's in Jerusalem where we ought to worship. Now, you know, what would most of us have responded to that? We, well, as Christians, we say, listen, God is everywhere. You can worship, but that, but certain people say, like, no, no, I'm part of this church and I'm part of this church. Well, we don't or have the same. I think, I, I think you're overthinking it right now. Oh, I probably am. You know what I think? <laughs> but you know what I think they, they do? So she changed the subject. What would we have done? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's oh, we'll call it back on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring it back well, you know, we're not getting off the subject. Why did Jesus leave the subject? Because what does he do? Look what he does. It says 
Jesus declared, believe me, woman, when she asks about the worship. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus did not go back, Mm. did not point out her sin. You know why? I believe because he made his point. The gospel is good news. That's what Mm -hmm. that means. What is Jesus doing so far? I want you to think of this for a second. It says he needs to go into Samaria. He goes and he meets a woman, divine appointment. He knows that she's going to be there. He meets her. He sends his disciples away so they don't interfere. He gets her attention. He he arouses her curiosity. He creates within her a desire. Then he calls out her sin. The gospel is incomplete without calling out Mm. my sin. Mm -hmm. This is not, you know just all good news it is good news you know what the good news is that even though you sin god forgives you and will give you eternal life if you turn from your sin and that when you do that then you are truly worshiping in that spirit and god puts his spirit in you which wells up and becomes what a source of life and you become a co-laborer with god himself with jesus bringing that life to other people yeah right oh yeah and everyone always says knows john three sixteen, but john three seventeen, like ties that all in for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him yes he didn't come to condemn so what does he do here he demonstrates that he's not condemned it's a good point that was a great connection there so what is he doing he's connecting i'm not here to condemn you but i want you to know that i know that you know that what you're doing has not been good the woman caught in adultery mm-hmm. where are your accusers now i don't know lord says do they not condemn you no and neither do i but go and sin no more go and sin no more and was like, oh he's asking her to be perfect no no he's telling her stop your habitual sin stop the sin cycle change yeah. stop what you're doing knowingly mm. right you're going to stumble and fall into sin you might get angry in a flare of a moment and and say something you didn't mean and you know whatever you'll do all that but but he's telling her no he doesn't leave you there he didn't leave that woman in that moment and i love when he says you know the time has come you know he said it is coming and has now come that you will worship god neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem and that's that is a power-packed statement it is just you could break that down for an hour in itself it's just Uh, yes and we'll say this only is that jesus was predicting as he did in other places the fall of Jerusalem because mm. of the rejection of him by his people. And he says that not one stone will be left upon another when he's looking at the temple and looking at the why? Because you did not recognize the day of your visitation, the day that the Messiah mm-hmm. came to you and extended the olive branch, extended grace, extended what he's extending right now to this woman. So who's he going to? He's going to a woman who's not a pure Jew. Everybody thought Messiah, he's coming to his own people. He did, but he, he didn't limit it to mm-hmm. his own people. It spilled over. Now, you know, want to get a couple more things in here. So the woman said, I know that 
Messiah, called Christ, is verse 25, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. You don't get a, 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 a much clearer statement in all the, of the Bible than this one right here. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples return and are surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman sent back, you know, went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, this is really significant. She leaves her what? She leaves her water jar. That's that's that was basically a light source. That's a light that you're that's what you carry your water back and forth. You know what it tells me? It tells me that she's coming back. Mm. It tells me that she's so filled with excitement. She's she's got to tell somebody. That's what happens when you come to faith. If you are listening today and you and you're a believer in Christ, when you came to Christ, especially in that first moment, but then it continues on, you feel so much joy, so much excitement that you're bursting and you want to tell people. Sometimes you're just blurting it out. Sometimes you're a little bit more controlled and, you know, holding and sharing with people what happened to you. And sometimes people get it. Sometimes they don't at all. Sometimes, and, and we're going to stop in there to wrap up with a couple other thoughts in this whole thing. You know what I call this section for those of us that are believers? This is Jesus' method of evangelism. What does he do? He goes to the unlovely. He goes to those who he knows have need. And they know mm. they have need. When he preached to the leaders of Israel, it was like preaching at a stone wall that everything bounced off. But he did it so that they would be without excuse. Mm -hmm. He knew they wouldn't receive it. Why? Because they had their own agenda, their own ideas, their own thinking about who Messiah should be and what he would be like. Not this peasant that comes from, you know, common stock who's a carpenter. No, the one we are, are expecting that the Bible tells us about is a warrior. He's going to be rise up and have followers and overtake Rome. And, you know, no. They would be right, but that's the second coming. The Bible talked about two comings. Mm -hmm. The first coming, he would come as a suffering servant. Why? Because he had to kill the bigger enemy. He had to, to take on sin. Mm -hmm. Then he could take on earthly governments. But he had to give us a way to eternal life. Now, more about that in another time, too. So let's just review. And I think we have a few minutes here to do that. Jesus goes to a person that Jews would never have spoken to. A regular Jew, any Jew, would have said, yes, we have the words of life. We have God's word. We have Moses. We have the prophets. We have the oracles of God. We have the, the Bible. And what they would have mean by Bible, if you know, the New Testament was not yet written. It's what we would call today the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. So they had these. And they felt... Not in, it could be an unhealthy way, but they felt proud that that they, they were part of that chosen people. But when you are part of a chosen people for something, it also requires what? A greater understanding and a greater responsibility. To whom much is given, much is expected. Much is expected, much is required. So when you're given the gospel and you're, you're given the Holy Spirit, 
now much is expected from you. Say, ooh, okay. It's a little sobering, right? So what, what's going on? Jesus goes to this least likely of people. He goes into her, you know, over to her, talks to her. He, he knows, I want to bring the gospel there. You and I have a deep desire to share with others what we now know to be true. We don't know how to start. You know what? You have to think that through. Jesus had an idea. I'm going to get rid of the guys with me. I love them, but I know they're going to get in the way. So I'm going to send them off to a task. And when they came back, they came back with bread. Twelve of them returned. Not fifteen, not a hundred, twelve. With food. So when they come back, so they see him talking to this woman, okay? But when he's talking to the woman, he gets her attention. And it's startling. He uses something startling. So how do we get people's attention? You can use a startling statement or a startling statistic or something creative. I have a, a great mentor friend who passed away now, but he was a tremendous mentor of mine. And he had this vivacious grin and smile. You would see him and you immediately were put at ease. And he lit up, his whole face would light up. And he would see you in a store and, you know, maybe you'd interact and you'd say something and ask him a question and a big smile would come on his face and he'd give you an answer. And people would often say to him, why are you so happy? You know, and he's, he used that. He learned to use that because he knew people. He, he kept seeing that people would do this. So he said, I'm going to use this. And he said, what reason do I not have to be happy? I know the creator of the world. Personally. And people would be like, what? You know, and then he would go in. But he got their attention. And, you know, and then his next questions or whatever would establish curiosity. You know the creator? Or use other statements too. And he would then... You know, arouse curiosity so that they stay in the conversation, even in the middle of food shopping or whatever they're doing. And and he would have this like elevator speech, if you will. It's a five minute thing, hey. And then he would tell them what his life was like. And then say, but when Christ came, when I gave my life to him, when I came to an understanding of what the Bible taught and what God expects, my my questions were answered. Now, what do you think that's doing in someone's heart? Wow. It gives him hope. I want to know that. I have questions. So he understood. He created desire. And as he talked, he would then talk about what he gave up. He said, you know what? Before I could do anything, before that news could become good news, I had to take a look at my sin. Take a look at who I really was. Take a good look in a mirror. Don't look at just the shiny side. All the stuff. No. I look inside. And I didn't like what I saw. And you know what God asked me to do? Deal with that. He said, but I'm not going to let you do it alone. I'm going to deal with it with you. I'm going to help clean that out. And I love, I love uh, the pumpkin palooza we do. We do this, you know, around Halloween time. It's a great event, yeah. Right? And I love the story that Al tells, right? And, and, you know, I've seen that story for years and years. But you take, you can tell the gospel. You take this pumpkin and you, you open it up like God would open us up. And you open the lid of the pumpkin, you look down inside, which is hollow, but then you see what? All the guts. All the goop and <laughs> seeds and you know, like, ew. And then you scoop it all out and, you know, all the kids are going, ew, you know, you throw it out, but you clean it all out. And then you look in here and you go, wow. Then you take, then you, then you 
as you're telling the good news story about what Jesus did, you're creating a face in the pumpkin. Then you give him some eyes and you give him a nose. And then what we always do in that one is we give a big smile. And the pumpkin is smiling. He's not got this evil right, look. Or, he's actually happy. Right. Yeah. He's actually happy. And then you put the candle in and there's a and light, there's light inside. And there's a light coming out through the smile. And, and when you think of that, that's exactly what God does. And he comes out from in us with a great smile. But, it, but we won't get that smile. We won't get that, that feeling, that sense, that knowledge of truth that our sin has been dealt mm. with, that we are truly forgiven and accepted by the only one that really matters. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, we have reason to smile. Jesus used this to bring a smiling face, a life-changing event, dealing with sin, and, and give her the spirit of God that welled up in her. And you have to come back for the next one because she's going to go and she's going to be used by God mm-hmm. to do something. And we're going to learn all about the rest of the prejudice from the. It, it's a great chapter. It's a great chapter. So, so yeah, definitely tune in. So read the rest and, uh, and, and you can tune into that, you know, uh, any last thoughts? Listen, it's, it's power packed, but yeah, we're learning who Jesus is through this. You listen to this and it just stirs you. And right. like I said, most people unfortunately have the misconception of God only wants the, wants the ones that we think are good. Yeah. Now think of this. From this passage that we just did, we find something out about Jesus. But several things. But number one, Jesus loved the unloved. Number one. Secondly, he loved people knowing full well what their sin is. Mm-hmm. He loves us knowing full well what our sin is. And that love for us took him to the cross willingly. Mm. He went and died so that we could have life. That tells you something about Jesus. So let's close in prayer. Why don't you close us, Mike? Well, Lord, we just thank you for this day. And um, we thank you for being able to talk about you, Lord Jesus, about who you are so that other people will come to know you. Because, Lord, like we just said, we know you love even people that we don't understand, or but you love them, and you want them to come to you, Lord, because you, as you say, as we talk about the I am's, you are the way, the truth, the light, so many things, Jesus. And um, that's what we want people to come to realize, because it'll be life-changing for them. So if you're hearing this, and you're, you're stimulated by it, just pray. Pray to the Lord. Say, Jesus, come to me. Come to me. And you'd start the relationship there. And um, we just thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. Great to have you guys uh, listening today. And uh, um, hope to see you or not see you. Well, I do hope to see you. But I uh, certainly hope you tune in again <laughs> next time. Have a great one.